If you're joining us online or if you're here as a guest, uh, we want to welcome you as well and say that we're happy that you're joining us and happy to be sort of engaging in our ongoing study in the book of Genesis, which we'll dive into in just a second. Um, we're going we're to be in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, and uh, if you have one of our journals, that's even better. By the way, if you're a guest or if you're new, we'd love for you to get a copy of one of those Genesis journals. It's a great way to just sort of record the things that God might say to you in the course of the study. And you can find those in the lobby. Or if you're at home, uh, we can send one to you. You can swing by the office and pick one up. I did want to let you know before we dive into this, for those of you who were in our services last week, that was our Elder Sunday, and we had our, uh, our Elder Affirmation vote, and I, I posted a thing this week on a video, but in case you didn't see it, that, uh, that Elder Affirmation went through uh, with great numbers. I think we were at like 94% affirming, so those new elders are all affirmed, and we had our first meeting this week, and it was great. And just in case you were wondering, you know, I, I know you go home after church on Elder Sunday just waiting to see what the outcome of that election you probably weren't able to sleep on Sunday. I just wanted to let you off the hook on that. So as we come into, uh, as we come into Genesis 2, I was thinking, and, and with it being Mother's Day, I was thinking about uh, my mom and my grandmother. This is the first year on Mother's Day that I will be not able to call either of them, which stinks, um, because they're with Jesus. And that's, so that's been a tricky part of my year. But I was thinking about my mom in particular with regard to this passage. One of the funny things about my mom, and this has been true about her her whole life, or at least my whole life, is that she, she made plans for us on the day after Thanksgiving, every year. I was never, as a kid, I was never allowed to make plans on the day after Thanksgiving because my mom had scheduled that entire day. And sometimes what she planned would go on into Saturday and sometimes even Sunday. And what my mom had planned for us on the day after Thanksgiving was Christmas decorating. And my mom didn't just like to decorate for Christmas. Uh, my mom, literally, my mom's house was full of knickknacks and little tchotchkes and whatever. And on the day after Thanksgiving, we were required to take everything that was currently in the house and put it away and replace all of it with something Christmas, right? So if we had like a little music box that was normally on the entryway table, that got put away, packed up and replaced with a Christmas music box. And if there was a blue comforter on the guest room bed, that got put away and replaced with a red comforter, right? Everything got done and it was all done with meticulous specificity. So my mom knew exactly where things would go. My brother and I labored every year through the day after Thanksgiving because my mom had had such a precise picture in her head of where she wanted all this stuff. My brother and I lovingly referred to my mom's house at Christmas as the house where Christmas threw up, right? That's kind of what it looked like. It looked like there had been a Christmas explosion. And, uh, but it was really funny because we would get done putting all this stuff up. And then my mom would go, uh, we were like, are we done? Can we go out with our friends? And she'd be like, wait a second. The candles on the angel candelabra are supposed to go green, red, white, green, red, white, and you guys have them white, green, red, white, green, red. So we can we change that? And the train that goes around the Christmas village is supposed to go in a counterclockwise manner. And, not, you know, like that was how specific it was. But when it was finally done, she would step back and she would look at it all. She would observe the house where Christmas threw up and she would go... That's what I was after. There it is. Christmas is here, right? And then for the month of December, I can remember several times, even as a teenager, where I would come early in the morning or late at night after it, when everybody else was in bed, and I would lay down on the couch in my mother's living room and turn on all the twinkly lights as the only illumination in the room and just sort of bask in the glow of my mother's Christmas creation. Does that make sense? And just appreciate that finished work. Appreciate all the effort and the intention that had gone into it. Appreciate the way in which she had created a space for us to celebrate Christmas that was down to the, the order of the candles in her head. 
It was a beautiful thing to just be able to kind of rest in that space. As we come to the end of Genesis chapter 1 and we've seen the the six days of creation, we see the pinnacle of creation. But we don't see the climax of the creation story. We come to the end of Genesis chapter 1, we see the pinnacle of the created order, and that is the creation of man. And we've talked over that uh, in the last couple of weeks. That finally God creates man in his image, he blesses us, and he bestows on us a responsibility. We saw that last week, and he proclaims his created order good. But while man is the pinnacle of the created order, man is not the climax of the creation story. Does that make sense? You see the difference? The climax of the creation story is that when God is done with all that he intended to do, he rests, he rests, he ceases to work. He calls his work finished. He celebrates and enjoys and basks in his completed work. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. And theologians will argue that maybe Genesis 2, 1 through 3 should actually have been tagged onto the end of Genesis 1. Remember that our chapter divisions are added. Those aren't inspired. Those are added down the way. It doesn't really matter where the chapter division goes. We do see a continuation of the story here. He's created all of these things. And then in Genesis 2, 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. That just means sun, moon, stars, all the created order. He had finished everything he intended to do in its totality. It says, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, I I hope you're hearing a little bit of that redundancy, right? You're hearing a little bit of that repetition. In the original Hebrew, that redundancy is even more evident. In fact, these phrases are structured in such a way that the word finished kind of sits right in the middle of all of them. You don't get that necessarily when you're looking at it in English. But if you have one of our Genesis journals this morning, I would encourage you to underline the word finished. It occurs here a couple of times. Underline the word finished or circle it so that you can see the emphasis on his finished work, right? There's also the word done that occurs a couple of times in these three verses. You might underline those. That word done essentially means accomplished in the original language, right? It means all that he had accomplished. He rested in all that he had accomplished, all that he had finished. It's important for us to understand that the rest of God comes when he has done everything he intended to do. When he has done everything he's he's intended to do. Now, it's worth noting that on the seventh day here, uh, there are a couple of things that are different than the other six days. In each one of the other six days, if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 1, you would see that each one begins with, and God said, let there be, or let us make, right? Every time there's this intentionality of what God is intending to do, we don't see that formula here on the seventh day. God doesn't say anything at the beginning of the seventh day. Instead, he rests. That's because there is no more creation to be done. But another interesting thing that we see here in Genesis 2, 1 through 3 that isn't true of the rest of the creation story in Genesis 1 is that we don't see the distinction that we find at the end of every other day of creation where it says, and evening and morning was the second day, or and evening and morning was the third day, or and evening and morning was the fourth day. You can see that in verses of chapter 1, like 5 and 8. You'll see that repetition. Notice here that the rest of God does not have an evening and morning, and that's the end of the seventh day. You might go, well, what's, what, what difference does that make? Well, it's actually really important. What we understand about the rest of God and his finished work and his accomplishment in creation is that it wasn't just a 24-hour period of rest. In fact, the way it's written here and the way it's described for us is that the rest of God begins once the created order is accomplished or done, and it goes on in perpetuity, Right? 
that there isn't just a morning and an evening and his rest was over and he goes back. Now, later when we talk about Sabbath order, which we'll see uh, later in Exodus and, and in Deuteronomy, we will see that there is a, a prescribed day for human beings of rest, a Sabbath day that, that is a 24-hour period. But for God, there is no implication here in this first day of rest that his rest was only from sundown to sundown the next night, but rather that his rest began and that his rest was intended to continue. It's a perpetual rest. Why? Because his created work is finished. There's no evening and morning, meaning that this rest is intended to continue. This rest is continued to go on. It's also worth noting here that in establishing these days, why why even mention that it's the seventh day at all? Why mention that creatures are made on the sixth? God also establishes periods of time, right? That's sort of a subtext in the creation story. But note here that what we have in Genesis 1 and the beginning of 2 is a a delineation of of days, the sixth day, the seventh day, etc. Why even bother with that delineation of days? Well, what God does in establishing time as we know it establishing days and nights, evenings and mornings, is he also creates the ability for him to set aside particular periods of time as sacred, to bless particular periods of time distinctly from others. We might call those holy days or we might call those sacred days. God is establishing that in this as well. But while we will see later... In the story of the Sabbath, and by the way, for, just for reference, remember when we were in our spring training series, one of our Sundays on spring training was on Sabbath rest. You may remember that. It wasn't that long. It was March 7th. That's 3-7-21. If you weren't here that morning, I would highly encourage you to go back and watch that message again, just to be refreshed in your mind about all that God calls us to in resting from our labors and being with him. That was kind of the emphasis of that message on the 7th of March. But here... We don't see a prescription, not in Genesis 2, we don't see a prescription for man to adhere to. While the Sabbath rest that he will call us to later, the Sabbath rest that he will certainly call the Israelites to in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, while that Sabbath rest will come down the road, here in Genesis 2, we don't see anything of a prescription for us. That's foreshadowed here, it's set up here, it's sort of pointed to here, but all we see in Genesis 2, 1 through 3 is not God rested so you should rest, but rather God finished what he intended to do and he let that be enough. If you're taking notes this morning, I would encourage you to write this phrase. Let it be enough. Let it be enough. You see, what we see here is not God setting a pattern necessarily for us. There's no mention of that in Genesis chapter 2. That will come later. What we see is God doing something. And what God does in Genesis 2 is he finishes what he had set out to accomplish. He finishes what he had set out to accomplish. This is God saying, that's what I came to do, and it is enough. And what does that mean for us practically? Well, what it means is that God is saying, nothing else needs to be added. Nothing needs to be adjusted. This creative work that I have just made is finished. Finished. I don't know how many of you are artists. I think we all have a little bit of art in us, even if you don't think of yourself as an artist. But as a guy who likes photography, who likes painting, as a guy who was a songwriter for a long time, as a guy who's recently taken up some fiber art, uh, I'm a guy that, that likes creating things, right? And I can tell you that as a painter, 
there is uh, when you're putting when you're putting paint on canvas, you're you're changing things. Are going. You're you're uh, you're. Ex- and by the way, my painting is all sort of abstract, so it's not like a picture of an apple on a table or whatever. I don't do that very well. But I work with color and form and space and shape. And there is a po- point as an artist where you step back from the work that you're making and you go, "That's it. It's done." But before that moment, you're, you're looking at it and you're going, yeah, this doesn't feel balanced. Or I feel like it needs a little bit of blue over here. Or I feel like I need to sort of figure out how to get rid of this thing I did over here because it doesn't look exactly right. As an artist, you're tweaking and changing and crafting and working. But there is a point where as an artist, you go, that's what that painting is supposed to look like. And I have had in my experience, people who've looked at paintings that I've done, they've come along and said, well, I wish you'd put a... I wish you'd put a little splash of red over here, or I wish you'd done, repeated this pattern over there. And you know what? That's relatively meaningless to me. It's interesting to hear their opinions, but as the artist, I'm not really interested in what they would add, or how they would tweak it, or what they would change, or what they would like better, or what they would have done if they were going to do it. As the artist, I am the one who at the end of the day gets to say, that's a finished painting and doesn't need to be touched anymore. God looks at all that he has created and he says, that's what I intended to do. Now I'm just going to step back and appreciate the accomplishment of it. I'm going to appreciate the finished work. It doesn't need to be added to. It doesn't need to be adjusted. It doesn't need to be critiqued. It doesn't need to be tweaked at all. Just leave it alone. Uh, Being Mother's Day, I'm guessing, I don't know what your tables are like in your homes, But there is a moment after my wife prepares a meal. Happy Mother's Day to Shannon, by the way. There is a day or or a moment after my wife prepares a meal where that meal is finished. You know what I'm talking about? The meal's done. She's been working on it. She's been cooking it. She slices and dices and she chops and purees and she gets the whole thing together and she puts it on the table. And me and my four children, we gather around that table. And you know what my wife's not interested in at that point? Our suggestions on what the meal could have been, right? Our suggestions on how the meal can be improved or what thing we wish had gone with it or how we wish it had had less salt or more salt or whatever, right? She's not super interested in that. Why? Because she's been slaving over the stove. Happy Mother's Day to you all, those of you who prepare meals. She's been slaving over the stove and by the time it hits the table, it is finished, right? I don't need to know what you wish was here and I don't know what you wish it would taste like. I don't need to know any of that. This is a finished meal. Let's just appreciate it and enjoy it. And if you're smart, number one, if you're smart, your mom's not cooking today, right? Number two, the next time your mom cooks and she puts that finished meal on the table, shut up about it, right? Why? Because it's finished. Because it doesn't need anything added and it doesn't need an adjustment. The work is finished. This isn't God resting because he's exhausted. It's not God resting because he's out of creative ideas. It is that he accomplished what he came to do and there's nothing else that needs to be added. If he'd wanted unicorns in there, you guys, he could have done it. I don't know what God has against unicorns, but he didn't want them, right? Now it's interesting. When it comes time for the Israelites to be commanded, turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We know that the fourth commandment is a commandment to keep the Sabbath, right? To keep the Sabbath. But what, what you might not know is that by the time that commandment gets reiterated at the end of the Pentateuch, uh, the Pentateuch, by the way, the first five books of the Old Testament, when the commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's interesting that in Exodus 20 it says, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, right? God here says that he blessed it and he consecrated it. So in Genesis 2, it says he blesses and consecrates it. We learned last week that when God blesses something, he does so that it will be fruitful. God wants this rest 
to be productive. Does that make sense? When he blesses the animals, he wants them to be productive. The only context in Genesis 2 that we have for understanding the blessing of God is that it's meant to multiply and amplify his blessing. You get that? So when he blesses the rest, he's wanting it to multiply and amplify. He wants us to be fruitful in that. And then it says he makes it holy. That just means he sets it aside for his consecrated special work, right? When we see in Exodus 20 that God commands the people to adhere to the Sabbath day, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, the instruction in Exodus 20 is that they do that so that they will remember that God created everything in six days and rested on the seventh. But by the time we come to Deuteronomy 5, there's an added remembrance, and I don't want you to miss it because it's significant. In Deuteronomy 5.13, it says this, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, this is an interesting addition that God gives us in Deuteronomy 5 that's different than Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, it says, keep the Sabbath day to remember that God rested on the seventh, right? But here in Deuteronomy 5, it says, remember the Sabbath day so that you can remember that God created and rested on the seventh and that you remember you were delivered. You remember that you were redeemed. So what we see here is that while God commanded it later for people to adhere to the Sabbath day, which we talked about in March, what we're seeing in in God's rest at the beginning is a satisfaction, a joy, a contentment in his finished work. The ability to say, that's it, that's what I wanted it to be, and it's done. And so we come to Deuteronomy chapter 5, and here we even have Moses telling the people, inspired by God, keep the Sabbath day holy, keep it consecrated and set aside. For the fruitfulness of which is what? Remembering that God himself created everything. So it's celebrating the created order that God finished. And also remembering that you have been delivered. Also remembering that you've been redeemed from your bonds of slavery in Egypt. Which, by the way, the people of Israel had nothing to do with. So don't miss this. The Sabbath that God initiated and and intended was for them to remember the beauty of God's creation, that he did it all, and also that they had been delivered apart from any effort of their own. That they had been delivered from slavery by the mighty hand of God, and not because they were great fighters, or because they they had a great plan, or because they worked out some political scheme, but that they had been delivered by the power of God. Why, Why does God want them to remember that? Well, because we like them, are pretty quick to forget about God's finished work. We're pretty quick to forget about God's power and his presence. We're pretty quick to forget. In fact, I'll just give you one example of this. If you were to look at Exodus chapter 14, uh, you, you would see the people cross the Red Sea, right? They cross the Red Sea as they're being delivered out of Egypt, Exodus 14. In Exodus 15, we see the Song of Miriam, right? They get across the Red Sea. All of their enemies in in Egypt have been destroyed in the Red Sea as the waters come back together. You know what happens right after that song? Right after they sing the praises of God who delivered them, they start to grumble about how they don't have any water to drink that they like. 
You know what happens in Exodus 16? They start to grumble about how they don't have any food to eat. They start to grumble against their leaders. They start to want to go back to Egypt. How long does it take before we forget our deliverance by the mighty hand of God? An hour? 30 minutes? I can get up here in front and say, God has redeemed us. God has delivered us. God has set us free by the power of his mighty outstretched arm and having nothing to do with any effort of our own. And we can all go, yeah, that's right. And then we walk out of this building. And by the time we get to our cars, we're grumbling again about how powerless God is or how he doesn't do the thing we want him to do the way we want him to do it. So God puts in place a moment of remembrance For us to remember all that he created by the power of his arm and this great redeeming work that he has done without any contribution from us. We didn't add anything to it. It doesn't need anything added. It doesn't need anything subtracted. The people are so quick to forget and they start to worry about where they're going to get their water and where they're going to get their food. It is not insignificant that Jesus later in John 4, verse 13, when he's talking to the woman at the well, We'll talk about thirst and the fact that he's the only one who ultimately satisfies that. Listen to what he says to her, John 4, 13. Jesus said to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water, that's the well, the well water, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Why does Jesus say this to her? Well, in one sense, it's because they're sitting on the side of a well. And so water is a very fitting illustration. But I think that Jesus' mind is also going back to the Israelites who were led across the Red Sea on dry land and immediately forgot the power of their God to deliver them. Immediately forgot what God had done without any help from them. It's not also not insignificant that in John chapter 6, verse 35, when the people are asking for bread, that Jesus says to them in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Right? Jesus sees himself as the water and the bread. What is it that the Israelites were worried about? They were worried about food and water. Why? Because we forget so quickly the power of God. It's crazy that we would think, oh no, God can deliver us from Pharaoh. God can deliver us from the armies of Egypt. God can part the Red Sea and allow us to walk across on dry land, but God cannot give us drinking water that's fit for us. We got to go back. God cannot provide for us food that will be sufficient. We got to go back. Isn't it interesting how often we, we affirm, oh, you know what? I believe that God can raise my dead spirit to life through his death and resurrection. I believe that Jesus will come again and he will receive me unto himself that where he is, I will be also. Amen, right? We can affirm these things and then we walk out of a place like this after affirming those grand, spectacular, powerful movements of God and we go, yeah, but I don't think God can heal my relationship. I don't think God can fix the thing that's happening at work. I don't think God can fill my cupboard with food. I don't think God can, can help me get through the difficulties of the, the political climate in our country. I don't think God can help me get through the stress and the drama of what's happening with my neighbors. Oh, no, no. I think he can raise me from the dead. I think he can get me into heaven one day. I think he can do all of that. He just can't impact the, 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 the details of my little life day to day. You see how ludicrous that is? So God says, stop. Remember, it's finished. It's accomplished. Can we just take a minute and appreciate what I've done, God says. 
Genesis 2, 1 through 3, after he had finished his work, he stopped to appreciate the finality of it, the completion of it, the accomplishment of it. You can see where I'm going with this and the pointing to Jesus, but it isn't just in Genesis 2 where we hear that God finished something important, right? It isn't just in Genesis 2 that we hear God finish something important. Can you think of another place in the scripture where we hear of God finishing something important? I certainly can. In John 19.30, as Jesus hangs on the cross, they give him a drink of sour wine. He says it is finished. And he bows his head and relinquishes his spirit. I will tell you that I think sort of theologically speaking that the rest of God didn't just happen in the 24-hour period that was the seventh day. I think the rest of God continued in perpetuity until the fall of man. And then he had to start a different kind of a work. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. But there was a new work that had to be started. And he began that work, working with man and in man, walking alongside him. And then eventually there was a day where Jesus, the Son of God, creator of everything we know, came to earth in bodily form. He took on flesh. He took the sins of mankind upon himself to repair and restore and redeem. Jesus went to the cross, not because he deserved that, but because I did. And he was crucified there. His blood was shed. He was killed on our behalf. And he died. He died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And in so doing, he proved his power over death. And he extends to us through his death and resurrection by his grace this very same resurrection life. It's that that Jesus is referring to when he hangs his head and says, it is finished. It is accomplished. And you know what response is necessary for us following John 1930? When Jesus says it's finished, the work is accomplished, the transaction is complete. You know what's what's required of us now following that finished work? Rest. Rest. Can you rest in the finished work of Jesus? Jesus finishes creation, or excuse me, God finishes creation here in Genesis 1 and 2, and he rests to say, that's it. There's nothing else that needs to be added. There's nothing else that needs to be contributed. It's a finished work of art. Jesus in John 19.30 finishes the work of recreating mankind, restoring our relationship with him. And he says it is finished. And you know what we've spent most of our time since then doing? Trying to add a little more salt, trying to add a little more pepper, trying to tell Jesus where we'd like a little more blue in the painting and a little more red over here and a little more... We, We spend all of our time kind of nickel and diming his finished work, looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying, is it enough? Will it ever be enough? Can it possibly be enough? On the seventh day, God rests and says, I did it. It's enough. And Jesus would look at you this morning and say, I did it. It's enough. Rest in it. Turn loose of all your striving and your worry. It's why the writer to the Hebrews, which we studied not too long ago, says this. There's a long passage, but don't lose it. Stay with me. Hebrews 4, 1 through 11 says this. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. 
For we have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. There he's speaking about the Israelites who didn't get to go into the promised land because they didn't trust him. Because they didn't trust what God had said. They could not rest in his power and presence. Verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter his rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has... Uh, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let me read that one to you again. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did his. Can you rest from your works because of the finished work of Christ? This passage says you can. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fail by the same sort of dis- fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What the writer to the Hebrews tells us is that in Christ, we have once again been o- offered the opportunity to enter into the rest of God. What is that rest? It's a ceasing. It's a ceasing. It's a stopping, saying what Jesus did is enough. What he has accomplished on my behalf is enough. And I don't have to strive. I don't need to add anything. I don't need to mess with it. I can settle my heart into it. It's why Paul will say in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He says, if people are giving you a hard time about what food you eat, or what holiday you celebrate, or where you go to church, or what version of the Bible you read, or whatever, that's my paraphrase. Turn loose of it. Those things are just a shadow of the substance, but the substance is Jesus. His work is finished. And we can rest in it. We can rest in his work. It's why Jesus himself will say in Matthew 11, 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Genesis 2, God rests, not because he's tired, not because he's out of ideas, but because his work was finished. And in doing that, he paints a picture for us that he will initially call people into as a law, but more importantly, he will point us to to say, when I've said a thing is done, it's done. When I put the meal out on the table, all that's left for you to do is enjoy it, right? I wonder how many of us in this room are exhausted, are full of fear and anger and fatigue and frustration. I wonder if you're full of stress and anxiety. I wonder if you're worried about your time. I wonder if you're lonely. I wonder if you're fighting for control. I wonder if you're plotting. I wonder if you're feeling all of this stress and frustration. And if it's maybe because you feel like Jesus' work isn't done. I'll give you a little bit of homework for this week. I'd love for you to spend some time this week in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 that says, There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
that you are sons and daughters of God, fellow heirs with Christ, that there is nothing that can separate you from his love. You want to talk about the completed work of Jesus? It is finished. What do you have to fear? What do you have to be afraid of? If his work is finished, rest in it. The things that God says about you, that you are his beloved, that you are his child, that you've been forgiven, that there is no condemnation, that you are his heir, that you are, are, have a home in heaven with him. Rest in it. It's finished. I'm finished with a story. My, uh, I, I, I got to go on a trip with my friends, Eric and Julie. They had a, a pattern where they would take their children to Disneyland for the first time when they turned five. When their kids turned five, they take them to Disneyland for the first time. And uh, when their daughter Haley turned five, they invited uh, Shannon and I to go with them on this Disneyland trip, which we were excited to do. We love their kids and whatever. So we go to Disneyland. You can imagine being at Disneyland for the first time with a five-year-old who's never been there. Everything is amazing and wonderful. Her eyes are like saucers the whole time. It was like the best day. And I remember as we're standing in line uh, for Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, uh, as we're almost about to get on the car, uh, Eric, my friend, looks down at his daughter Haley, who's five, and he says, hey, one thing to know about this next ride, they don't let parents drive. He's like, so Haley, you have to drive the car. And he's like, it's up to you to get us through safe to the end. And she goes, okay, dad, you know. And we get on a Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, and she grips that steering wheel white knuckled. She is ready to protect us. And then the ride starts and she screamed bloody murder for two and a half minutes while that ride continued, right? She, and it wasn't like a cute little scream. It wasn't a scream of joy. It was a scream of absolute sheer terror, right? She is screaming. And it's not even like, it's like, it's just, it's like, it's like a, a guttural. It's like almost like a, you know, it's She's screaming the whole time. Tears flowing down her face. She's trying to turn the thing. But if you've been on Mr. Tilt's Wild Ride, you know, at one point it's going straight into a train. At one point it goes into a whole room full of dynamite. I mean, come on, right? And she feels responsible for that. She's trying to protect her family. She is the only one who can drive the car. And she is not doing a good job. She is going to kill us all. And we get to the end of that ride and she is ruined. I mean, she is destroyed as a kid. She's probably seeing a counselor now because of this, right? And we had to pull her aside and go, what, what happened? And she goes, I couldn't make the car do what I wanted to do. It wouldn't do what I wanted to do. And Eric, I think, realized his mistake, right? That he had set her up for terror on that ride. Now, as a parent who'd been on that ride before, you know what? I wasn't, I wasn't scared ever. I'm not scared on that ride. Neither are you probably when you ride it. You're not worried about the train. You're not worried about the dynamite. You're not worried about the the time when the car's spinning in a circle, right? Why? Because you know, it's on a track because you know, that ride's going to start and it's going to stop. And you're never once going to be at risk the whole time because you have an awareness of the finish. You don't have to be worried about the journey. It's not terrifying. But if you falsely believe that this journey of life is yours to control, if you falsely believe that your reputation or your identity or your value or your interactions with other people or your eternal home or the love of God on your behalf, if you falsely believe that those things are yours to steer, then what do you got to be? White knuckled on the steering wheel, screaming bloody murder all the way through your life. Scared and anxious and angry and bitter and jealous and frustrated the whole way through. Because you're trying to steer it, and you can't. But the good news is, it's finished. Jesus finished all the work it would take 
to secure your identity, to secure your place as an heir, to remove all condemnation from your account, to secure a relationship with him that nothing can separate. God says to his people in Psalm, in Psalms 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. One translation of that says, cease from your striving and know that I am God. When we look at the rest of God in Genesis 2, what we see is a God who went, I'm letting that be enough. I could do more, but that's all, that's all I came to do. It's finished. And in the cross of Christ, we see the Lord Jesus look at our broken lives, look at all the turmoil, look at all the frustration and say, it's finished. I got this. They're mine. And all that is required from us is to be still and know that he is God, to turn loose of the steering wheel and rest in his finished and completed work on our behalf. Would you bow your heads with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us a peace. It's my prayer every week that you're stirring something in us. This morning, my prayer is for peace, not a peace that comes from our own efforts and not a peace that comes from our striving, our ability to manipulate a situation or, or to navigate relationships, but a peace that comes from recognizing that this ride we're on, this life you've given us is meant to shape us, but, but that the journey is already written. We are being conformed to your image. We are your sons and daughters. There is no condemnation for us. We are loved and nothing can separate us from that love. And yet so often in our day-to-day lives, we, we have a hard time letting your finished work be enough. Letting your accomplishment on our behalf be enough. Will you help us to turn loose of the steering wheel of our lives, to stop our screaming and wrap our arms around the rest that can be found in understanding your finished work on our behalf. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.